Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for coming. I see that it's a full, uh, full house, so it's really pleasing to see. I'm Professor Celine Boom, and I'm the head of School of Physics at the University of Sydney. It's a tremendous honor tonight to host Professor Alison Gopnik. Here it is. Alison is a professor of psychology and philosophy at Berkeley University. She's an expert of child development, and we will hear a lot of fascinating research that she has done during the talk. Before I introduce Alison further, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we meet, the Gadigal people from the Aura Nation. It's upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, may we also pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And I, as a French woman, as you can hear, from a minority community in Europe, would like to especially thank the traditional owners of the land and the people from Australia for welcoming me. So tonight, we have the enormous privilege to have Alison Gopnik coming to, uh, to tell us about child development. Alison is internationally recognized for her work on children's learning and to development, as I said. She's uh, one of the founders of the theory of mind, and she has also pioneered the theory theory, which describes how children develop. More recently, she has shown how mathematical modeling and in particular, Bayesian inference could be applied to children's learning. Alison's work is being taught and used at the University of Sydney. And even though I am a physicist and not a psychologist, I actually happen to use some of the concepts that Alison has introduced. Alison did her PhD at Oxford, Univers Oxford University, and after some work at Toronto, at the University of Toronto, she became professor at Berkeley University in California. She has been, as you can imagine, she's been awarded many prizes and fellowships, including one which I think many women would love to receive, namely the All Souls College Distinguished Visiting Fellowship. She wrote many influential books, including a bestseller um, a book, which is called The Scientist in the Crib, and more than 100 peer-reviewed publications. She has given many talks, as you can imagine, but including, and we're all jealous, a TED talk, which gathered more than 4 million viewers. Uh, she has also frequently appeared on many TV shows, radio shows, so I'm sure you understand, Alison is a star, and she's a leader in her field, and for all the reasons above, I'm absolutely delighted to give you Professor Alison Gopnik. Thank you so much, Shelley, for that lovely welcome, and thanks to everyone who's come out. And um, Okay, so what I'm going to do today is very quickly talk about some work that we've been doing, trying to relate the kinds of things that we know about how children learn to the problem of designing computational systems that can learn. <laughs> 
And actually, this idea that children could tell us something about computers and about artificial intelligence goes back to the very, very beginnings of artificial intelligence. So this is actually a quote from Alan Turing, the great founder of computer science and the computer. And he wrote a famous paper in which he first argued that the way that you could tell whether a computer was actually intelligent was to do what he called the imitation game, to try and see if it could fool a person into thinking it was like a person. And this paper is very well known. But one of the things that isn't as well known is that after he said, well, look, if a computer could imitate an adult human well enough to fool another human, it would be intelligent. He turns around and says, you know what? Forget about all that imitation game Turing test stuff. Here's what would actually be the test to see whether a computer was intelligent or not. And here's the quote. Instead of trying to produce a program to simulate the adult mind, why not rather try to produce one which simulates the child's? And Turing's point here was that simulating a child would be much more powerful because, of course, the child is learning how to be an adult from the data and information that they get around them. Um, and that would be the thing that would be the real sign of intelligence, not just being able to mimic uh, an adult. Now, the interesting thing is I've been giving this talk for a while, and, um, and I always say this is the quote from Turing that nobody knows about that's completely obscure. Um, but I discovered uh, uh, about a year ago when I was trying to look up this quote on Google that suddenly this quote was all over the place. If you look for Turing saying things about children, there's a gazillion hits. Um, and it turns out that all the current AI people have this slide in their talks as well. I was a little indignant about this when one of my colleagues Started, a, started his talk with this slide. Um, and there's a reason for that. And the reason is that all the great advances in AI recently have been due to machine learning. So they've been due to thinking about computers, not so much in terms of what the computers could do or the problems they could solve, but trying to design computers that could actually learn how to do things from the experiences that they have. And that's turned out to be really the key to the big new, um, uh, new AI spring, the new, the new revolution in successful AI techniques. And of course, if you're thinking about learning, the first thing that you should be thinking about is children, because children are the best learners that we know of in the universe. Um, but when you actually start to try to cash out Turing's idea in more detail, it turns out that if you look at the way that current AI systems learn, it's actually quite different from the way that children learn. Um, and it's different in ways that make the AI systems really limited compared to children. So AI learning, if you think about the kind of typical techniques, deep learning, reinforcement learning, supervised learning, um, they need enormous amounts of data. And in fact, arguably, the success of these systems has depended as much on having an internet that provides enormous data sets as it has on on having conceptual advances in our understandings of um, in our understanding of AI. So they need big data sets. And the typical way that these systems work is that um, they'll get something like, say, all the images on the net of cats and dogs, and a bunch of the cat images will be labeled with the word cat, and a bunch of the dog images will be labeled with the word dog, and the systems can extract some of the statistics that say which are the ones that should be labeled as a dog and which ones should be labeled as a cat. Or in the case of something like... Uh, 
the amazing um, Google DeepMind systems that can beat humans at Go or chess, what will happen is the machine will make a move, making millions and millions and millions of moves, and we'll get information with each, <laughs> each move about how well it's doing. Is it doing better than it was before? Um, so they need lots and lots of data, and they need this kind of supervised data, data that tells them, are they doing a good job, or are they not doing a good job, are they doing better than they would before? And it turns out that um, the problem, that that's been responsible for all the success, but the problem is that these systems are not very good at generalizing. So even if the system could make some discriminations between cats and dogs, it's very easy to fool them. You can show them something that doesn't look at all like a cat or at all like a dog, but has some of the same statistical properties as images of cats and dogs, and it's very easy to fool them in a way that's very different from the way that uh, human beings would, would work. And even if you think about something like uh, alpha zero that can solve chess, all it takes is a little change, say, in the rules of chess, and the system will just fall apart. So even though it might be really good at solving chess, if you said, all right, now I want you to play chess, but with all the pieces upside down, and the bishops are actually going to be the things that are going to be important, um, a, a typical human could figure out how to do that, but, um, but the AI won't be able to do that without going through millions and millions more examples. Um, on the other hand, they're computationally, they work. They're computationally tractable. You can actually put them into a computer and have them work, and that's not trivial. That's an important thing to be able to do. If you compare and contrast that with children's learning, what you see is almost the opposite pattern. So, um, so if you look at the way four-year-olds learn, Four-year-olds are learning from very little data, from very small amounts of, of data and experience, you know, the dogs and cats who happen to be around them. Um, and importantly, data that's very different from the kind of data that typically the, uh, that the typical AIs are, are learning from. Um, they have very little supervision or reinforcement. So um, we might occasionally give a child a name or say, good job, but most of the time the children are just out and exploring and learning off on their own. They're very good at making generalizations. So they're very good at thinking of something that's new from the data that they already have in ways that are quite unexpected. So I I promised my mother who's here that I would tell a story about Augie, my grandson and her great-grandson. Um, uh, so here's an example. Um, Augie was talking to his grandfather and his grandfather said, I wish I could be a kid again. And Augie thought about this for a while and he said, Grandpa, why don't you try don't eat any broccoli and don't eat any green beans and don't eat any healthy vegetables and then maybe you could be a kid again. Um, well, of course, if you think about this, this is actually a pretty sensible idea, right? Because if you eat broccoli and green beans and healthy vegetables, when you're a kid, you turn into a grown-up. So if you want to reverse the process, if you just change around the other way around, then you should be able to become a kid again. Um, now, Augie, of course, is a wonderful, brilliant, genius child, but this is actually the sort of thing that you'll hear any four-year-old will say things like that. And they're really interesting because he's generalizing from what he knows in a way that's really creative, but that isn't something that any grown-up would say. And that's going to be a point that I'll uh, return to. On the other hand, um, we don't know how it is that they can actually do this in a 
the computational systems that they have inside of their heads. So we don't have a good way of actually implementing the kinds of learning that they're doing in a real computer. And that's the challenge that my colleagues and I have been, have been thinking about now. So how could we design a computational system that could do these things that children are doing? Well, there's a bunch of different kinds of things that we can talk about, but uh, today I'm just going to focus on, on two of these things that children do that current AI systems don't do. One of them is that the, chil that the children build abstract models of the world. So instead of just getting a lot of data and pulling out the statistics from the data, children are, are making little theories. They're making little ideas about how the world works, and they're using those ideas to generate new ideas, like Augie's little model of, oh, okay, vegetables added to child turn into adult. Um, and that's different from the way that typical current AI systems work. And then a second thing that the children are doing is that they're actually actively exploring the world. So the AIs are kind of stuck, trapped inside of their, um, inside of the cloud or inside of their mainframes. They can't actually go out and manipulate the world and get the kind of data that they need to get from the world. Um, and that's something that children are doing all the time. When they do it, we call it getting into everything, um, or we call it playing. Um, that's what children are doing when most of the time that they're around in the world. Um, so I'm going to talk about some examples of both of those things. In addition to actively exploring the world outside them, another thing that children are doing is exploring the imaginary world, exploring the range of possibilities that they can generate in their own heads. And you can see this in something like children's uh, everyday pretend play. And I'll give some examples of that as well. Um, and what I'm going to argue is not only are children building abstract models and actively exploring um, in ways that current AI systems can't, but they're actually doing it better than regular adults do. The, these kinds of capacities for building abstract models for exploration are characteristic of, are characteristic of children. Um, so it's not just about, it, if you want an AI that can learn, it really should be like a child in particular, not just like any old human being. Um, let me give you uh, examples of this kind of model building and exploration in action. Uh, and here's an example. This is a little boy who's seen this blicket detector. And this is a box that we use in our experiments where that lights up and plays music when you put some things on it and not others. And what he's seen is that uh, first he saw that red ones make it go and yellow ones don't. And then he sees an exception. The red one isn't working. And the experimenter says, can you tell me why that happened? And here's what he does. I printed this on the box and this on the box. Look. Uh-huh. That, this makes that light up the box. Mm-hmm. How about this? That makes the other side. Ah. Oh. Nothing. This one's lighting up, and this one's not. So that means... Hmm. It's making this light up. Hmm. 
Okay. So aside from the fact that that's another adorable, articulate little boy, um, it turns out that what he does in that circumstance is actually quite typical of what four-year-olds do when you present them with a puzzle and ask them to explain it. And you can see that all of the things that I talked about before are showing up just in his everyday behavior. He's making up models. He's making up explanations. He's talking about the electricity or the number or the orientation of the blocks. Um, and he's also exploring by actively experimenting to see whether or not his theories or his hypotheses are, are right. And he's also internally exploring, considering lots and lots of different options. And in that you know, very short, I think it's two and a half minute clip, uh, there's nine different hypotheses he has about how the machine works. And they kind of cover the waterfront. They're everything from electricity to shape to number in a, in a very wide ranging kind of way, um, in a way that I think you would not find an adult uh, producing. So these are the kinds of reasons. And the other thing to notice is that he's intrinsically motivated to try and do this kind of exploration. Um, so those are really the kinds of things that you see every day if you're hanging around with four-year-olds that make me uh, think, make developmental psychologists think that they're doing this kind of exploration. But of course, we actually have to demonstrate this systematically in the lab. Um, and that's what my colleagues and I have been doing over the last 20 years or so. So let me start with a point about inferring models, about working out hypotheses about how the world works. Um, this is work with Chris Lucas and Tom Griffiths. Um, and again, we use this little machine, the Blicka detector, to try to uh, ask the children things like what they think about probability and statistics. Um, as you probably know, even grown-ups are really bad at understanding statistics. But that's because we ask them the question in the wrong way, like, do you understand statistics? Or what's the conditional probability of this given the conditional probability of that? How could we ask children about statistics? Well, we do it by doing things like giving them this little machine, showing them a statistical pattern of correlation between the things that you do and the outcomes of the machine, and then getting them to make the machine go and seeing what kinds of inferences they make. Um, so you can actually be participants in this experiment. Here's a little Blicka detector. Um, and we put three blocks on the detector, D, E, and F. Um, D goes on three times, nothing happens. E goes on, nothing happens. D and F together go on the block twice, and the machine lights up. And here's the question, is D applicate or not? OK. Is E applicate or not? And how about F? Is F applicate? OK, great. As I thought, the Sydney Ideas audience is as smart as Berkeley undergraduates, but possibly not as smart as four-year-olds. Because what if you also saw this sequence of events? Suppose you saw A, B, and C go on the detector, A and C together make the detector go, A and B and B and C go on, and the detector doesn't go. Now you might think, oh, wait a minute, this detector works in this really weird way, right? I thought it was one of those standard detectors where either you put something on it or not and it makes it go or not. But this one seems to work on this combination, this kind of conjunctive principle that you have to have more than one to be able to activate the detector. It's actually combinations of blocks that work on this machine. And if you saw this sequence, you might go back to that sequence that I showed you originally and now say, oh, okay, if the machine works in this abstract way, then uh, 
actually D and F are the blickets, not just, not just F. Because if it takes a combination, then D and F are the likely combination in this sequence of events. So what we did was we did exactly the experiment we just did with you, with four-year-olds and Berkeley undergraduates. Um, and what we did was either gave them information that this machine worked on this general principle that's kind of obvious, the individual principle, or that it worked in this really unlikely way, the combination principle. And then we gave them this ambiguous um, sequence and saw what they said. Um, it was actually a little bit more complicated than this because of goddamn reviewer two. Um, but here's what this looks like. It's very important, again, for us to figure out which of these are blickets. So let's call this one triangle, okay? What should we call this one? Square. Square. And what should we call this one? Ball. Ball. Sounds good. Okay, so let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine. Are you ready? Let's see. Look at that. The machine did not turn on. Let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine again, okay? Look, the machine did not turn on. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle on the machine one more time, okay? Let's see. Look, the machine did not turn on. Now let's see what happens when we put square on the machine, okay? Look at that. The machine did not turn on. Okay. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle and ball on the machine together. Look at that! The machine turned on! Now let's see what happens when we put triangle, square, and ball all on the machine together. Are you ready? Let's see. Look at that! The machine turned on! Okay. Now let's see what happens when we put triangle and ball on the machine together. Are you ready? Let's see. Look, the machine turned on. So Scarlett, do you think that triangle is a blicket or not a blicket? A blicket. And do you think that square is a blicket or not a blicket? No. No. And do you think that ball is a blicket or not a blicket? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so Scarlett, which of these should we use to make my machine turn on? Okay, so I like this because I like showing cute children solving problems, but also because if you're like most people, as you were watching that, you were thinking, what was that again? Was it the round one or was it the square one? Um, it's really hard to track, but you can see that little four-year-old is tracking exactly what's going on. And not only had she inferred something about how the, the specific um, blocks worked, but she figured out this, this is a child in the combination condition, she figured out this abstract principle that the way the machine worked was by making these kind of combinations. If you give the children, um, so we did this, as I said, with Berkeley undergraduates and with four-year-olds, if you use the obvious hypothesis, everybody gets it, the four-year-olds and the undergrads, but how about when it's the unlikely hypothesis? Well, what we discovered was that even four-year-olds were very good at inferring even this really abstract hypothesis about how the machine worked, something that went well beyond the superficial statistics that are the sort of thing that, say, a deep learning system would, uh, would extract from this data. The kids were going well beyond that, um, which was interesting in and of itself. But then what we did was decide, uh, as I say, we did it with undergrads, and here's what the undergrads look like. <laughs> 
So even when we gave the adults data um, that suggested this unusual hypothesis, they stuck with what they already knew. They stuck with the thing that they already uh, believed was the most likely hypothesis. And they didn't seem to be able to switch to this more unlikely, out-of-the-box, far-away hypothesis that nevertheless was a better fit to the data. Um, and interestingly, we did this um, in a study more recently with uh, children of a range of ages. Um, one of the questions we wanted to ask was, is this just a matter of knowing more? Is it that just that as you know more, um, you rely more on your past knowledge um, and less on the new evidence? Or is there something special about being a child, and in particular being a preschooler, that's allowing you to have this kind of very general flexibility? So what we did was we looked at four to five-year-olds, six to 11-year-olds, um, adolescents and adults. And if you look at the six-year-olds, when you go to school, which is probably not a coincidence, you start see this decline in flexibility. But it sort of stays the the same all throughout the period that you're in school. So it isn't just about how much more you've learned and you know. Um, but when you hit adolescence, which we know is a, a, a time of a lot of change in the brain, then that's when you see the big uh, uh, decrease, the really big decrease in flexibility. And the adolescents and the adults are, are statistically equivalent. So it looks as if there's something about switching from being a preschooler to being a school-aged child, and then switching from being a school-aged child to being an, an adult that is at least contributing to this decline in flexibility, this decline in an ability to think of something that's really new and different. Um, and in fact, if you think more generally about adult intelligence and child intelligence, what this pattern suggests is that there's something special about the way that child intelligence works that's really different from the way that adult intelligence works. And if we want um, an AI that's as intelligent as humans, it would have to have both this kind of child intelligence and this adult intelligence. So if you take a typical kind of adult cognitive psychology class, you'll see a lot about things like attention and planning and decision making and being able to have a goal in front of you and figure out how the best way to achieve that goal. Um, you won't read very much about learning or, um, or inference. Whereas if you read a cognitive development textbook, you'll see just the opposite. You'll hear a lot about things like language learning or figuring out theories of mind or figuring out other people's emotions. You won't hear very much about goal-directed, focused, effective planning because that's something that children are incredibly bad at to the point of you know, not being able to get their jackets on to go to preschool in the morning. So you have these creatures who are incredibly good at learning, not very good at acting, and then you have these other creatures who are incredibly good at acting, not very good at learning something new. And we've been explaining this in terms of what computer scientists and neuroscientists talk about as an, a trade-off between exploration and exploitation. So the idea is if you have a problem to solve, one way that you can solve the problem is by just doing the best you can with what you've got now and finding a pretty good close solution close to what you already know. Um, another way that you can, and that's a kind of exploit solution, that's a way of getting what you want pretty quickly and pretty effectively. Another thing you can do is you can look around and try and explore all the possible ways to solve that problem. Um, 
And the disadvantage of that is you're going to spend a lot of time thinking of solutions that aren't actually very good, that aren't actually very helpful, um, but you may be able to find something, a solution that's actually much better than the place that you currently are by just trying things out and exploring different kinds of options. And what comes out of the computational literature about this is that it really is a trade-off. There isn't any kind of straightforward way of having a strategy that will let you both exploit maximally and explore maximally. You always have to figure out some way of trading off those two, uh, those two values. And there isn't a kind of straightforward way of solving it. Um, but one characteristic of the algorithms that can solve it is that very often what they do is start out by exploring and then exploit. So start out by looking at the whole space explore, see what all the possibilities are, and then narrow in on something that you think is actually going to be the right solution. That's a characteristic of these kinds of algorithms. And what I suggest is that evolution used this kind of algorithm, uses childhood as a way of solving this trade-off. So we get this early period where we can do the exploration and we're taken care of so we don't have to worry about exploitation. And then this later period when we can take all the things that we discovered when we were young in the exploration phase and put them to use to exploit. And from this perspective, um, many of the things that, um, that seem like bugs from the adult perspective of adult intelligence, many of the things that have made psychologists in the past say that children were irrational or ineffective or weren't very smart, turn out to actually be features if you're thinking in terms of exploration. So being noisy, being variable, doing one thing one minute, another thing another minute, being um, impulsive, taking risks, even sort of unnecessary risks, playing. Those are all examples of things that look as if they're sort of useless if you're trying to just maximize your utilities. You're just trying to get as much as you can out of your environment, but are things that are actually benefits if what you want to do is figure out how that environment works, which in the long run should actually help you uh, to be able to, to deal with that environment and deal with changing environments. Um, so you can see this kind of explore-exploit trade-off I was talking about this in the example so far that this is this kind of internal hypothesis exploration. Um, but you can also see it in, um, in active learning and actually going out and playing and exploring. And uh, in collaboration with my uh, colleagues at Berkeley, we've been actually designing algorithms that instead of having these kind of, instead of being these supervised algorithms where someone, the programmer, you know, I, I realized I have a, a, I think a good image of this is the poor, poor little current AIs basically have these tiger mom programmers. So the AIs are going around the world with this mom who's saying, okay, you do this now and do that now. And, you know, now you're doing better and, and so forth. And as you might expect, you end up with systems that are very good at doing specific skills that they've learned, you know, they're great at the violin, but are pretty fragile and not very robust and fall apart when you put them in first year at university and they have to deal with something new. Um, so instead of having those, uh, those poor Tiger Mama AIs, 
my uh, computational colleagues at Berkeley and I have been collaborating on actually having an AI that's driven by curiosity in the way that children are being driven by curiosity. And essentially the way these systems work is they go around trying to make models of the world. And the interesting thing is that they're rewarded when their models fail. So they're actually rewarded when they try to understand something and it doesn't work. And then they go to the part of the space that is frustrating in a way, frustrating their models, doing something surprising, unexpected, and then they try to extract more information um, from that part of the space. And that seems to be something that uh, children are doing as well. And what we're doing at the moment is actually literally putting children and AIs in the same virtual environments um, and then showing the way that children are exploring the environments and how that fits with this kind of um, self-supervised, uh, this kind of self-supervised learning. Um, let me give some more examples of children as explorers. Uh, this is a lovely experiment. I wish it was. I wish it was for my lab, but it isn't. It's from Nim Tottenham's lab. It's in Nature. Don't worry too much about the uh, the slide. Essentially, what she did, what Nim did, was to just take off from one of the oldest findings in all of psychology. And this is the finding that you put a rat in a maze and it's got two arms. It goes down one arm and nothing happens. It goes down the other arm, it gets shocked, and it never goes down the arm where the shock is again. It avoids it. The classic, classic finding. Um, and of course, this is a really fundamental, foundational kind of learning. It's the kind of learning that lets you go out into the world and behave effectively. But it has a real uh, drawback. And the real drawback is, of course, that once you go down that arm with a shock, if the shock isn't there anymore, you're never going to find out about it. You're never going to explore that, uh, that potential outcome again. And, and you could think of this as being a model for a lot of kind of adult problems like anxiety, where, you know, you get scared of something and then you never find out that the thing isn't really scary because you're never willing to try and explore and test it again. And um, what Regina Sullivan found when looking at this with rats, so this is, again, classic, classic finding. But it's not true if you look at children. It's not true if you look at baby rats. So if you look at juveniles, what you see is that as long as the mother is present, the rat will actually prefer to explore the, uh, the arm of the mat where there's the negative outcome. And the reason is it looks as if the rats are saying, look, I get information if I come here. I don't get any information if I go to the other arm. And mom is there, so everything's going to be okay. I don't actually have to worry about, um, I don't have to worry about really bad things happening because mom is around. And what Nim showed was that she did exactly the same thing with, not with shocks, but with a loud, unpleasant noise with three and four-year-olds and found the same result, that the three and four-year-olds, as long as the caregiver was there, um, would actually prefer to try out the risky, weird, aversive stimulus. And again, those of you who have four-year-olds will probably recognize that um, phenomenon. In fact, that as a caregiver, you spend a lot of your time racing after them, making sure that they don't actually end up getting shocked in the, uh, the teammates. But the advantage of this is that that means that the children can actually learn um, about whether or not the, uh, the system is, uh, has changed or whether the system is, is variable or not. Um, and in uh, experiments that we've been doing in my lab, um, so that's an example of the children actually having an advantage in learning and exploration over the adults. The adults are, are trying to 
avoid negative outcomes, and that makes them actually worse at learning about how the environment works. Um, and let me give the last example of this from an experiment that uh, my student Emily Liquid and I have done recently. And this takes off from a phenomenon that uh, the psychologist Todd Gurek has talked about uh, called learning traps. So here's the setup. The setup is we've got one of those little blicker detectors, but it works a little differently than the other ones. This time, something actually rides on what happens on the blicket detector. So you have a bunch of these blocks, four sets of these blocks, and some of them, if you put ones that are zaps on the machine, you get a sticker or a, a monetary reward if you're an adult. Um, but if you get that not a zaf one, the one with the yellow, uh, the yellow one with black stripes, then you actually lose two stickers. But the trick is that you don't know that in advance. You just get a bunch of the blocks and you have to decide whether or not you want to put one on the machine. So you have all the blocks and then you get, each, on, with each block, you get to decide, should I just put it on the machine, find out whether it's a ZAF or not, but risk losing money, or do I keep it away from the machine? Do I just avoid it? Um, which means that I won't necessarily gain anything, but I won't lose anything either. So everybody sort of got the setup here. It turns out that if you do this with adults, what happens is that as soon as they see that not ZAF, they decide everything with stripes is bad. Um, so I'm never going to try anything with stripes or I'm never going to try anything that has um, a black pattern on it for the rest of the machine. Um, and of course, what that means is they never learn that actually stripes are okay, right? So they, over, they make this general rule, which will have the advantage that they're not going to lose anything, but has the disadvantage that there's a way that they could win that they haven't they haven't seen. And they'll never see it because every time that they put the block on, they get reinforced for this theory that they have about how it is that the, how it is that the blocks work. Um, so what we did was we did the experiment again with um, four-year-olds and seven-year-olds and adults. And what we found was that, in fact, as we might expect, the adults very quickly avoided the negative blocks. The six to seven-year-olds, not quite so much. And again, as you, sorry, as you might expect, the four-year-olds just kept putting the blocks on the machine. They were very conscious of the fact that they were losing stickers. They love stickers and they were sort of disappointed. But if it came to a choice between let me figure out what this block does and lose stickers, they would rather get, just like the rats in the previous experiment, they'd rather have the information even if it comes at the cost of stickers. Um, and then at the end of the experiment, what we did was actually ask the participants, what's the rule? What's a ZAF and what isn't a ZAF? And what we discovered was that the four-year-olds were much better at learning the rule than the seven-year-olds who were better than the adults. So the fact that the four-year-olds were willing to um, were willing to forego reward for information, they were willing to lose the stickers so they could figure out how the thing worked, meant that they were actually much better at learning, and in particular were much better at learning, remember the, the Blicken detectors were much better at learning the unusual rule, the unlikely rule, this two-dimensional rule that said it's both the blocks and both the stripes and the, um, and the color um, than, the, uh, than the adults were. And it turns out that if you look, um, it turns out that if you look across 
many, many different kinds of studies, you know, most of the time the exploit adult abilities are good. They make you better. So most of the time, if you give kids and adults a task, a problem to solve, the grownups will do better. But there's this whole, turns out that there's this whole range of cases where the children actually do better. And they all have this characteristic that they involve exploring something in an unlikely, unusual, flexible, creative way. So those are the kinds of examples where we actually see the children, uh, younger children doing better than older children and older children uh, doing better than adults. And what this suggests is that human intelligence really isn't just about, uh, as, as Turing brilliantly recognized a, a long time ago, human intelligence isn't just about being in the adult state where you can do things like solve problems and, um, and get what you want, human intelligence is really this combination of two different phases of intelligence. It's this combination of being able to have a kind of childlike exploratory intelligence where you're just trying to get information for its own sake, you're considering lots of different possibilities, you're bouncing around from one idea to the next, you're putting yourself at physical risk um, as you go out and explore the world. And then this other stage, which is the stage of actually being able to act to, uh, to maximize uh, rewards. So, so if you want an AI that is um, as smart as adults, you should really design it to be like a child or at least design it to have a childhood. That's really the secret. So actually having a childhood, having this protected period is, we'd argue, central to what it means to be able to have the kinds of resilient, flexible, creative capacities that are actually characteristic of, of human intelligence and are not as yet characteristic of, uh, of artificial intelligence. Um, and I kind of like this, uh, I like this moral, partly because there's something kind of, um, morally nice about the fact that these children who nobody pays any attention to, who everybody thinks are just running around causing, causing trouble, who are just, you know, out there, you know, being taken care of by women, um, that those people, those little people who we ignore and dismiss, turn out to actually really be the secret of intelligence that all the um, all the brilliant nerds in the world haven't been able to crack. Um, uh, so maybe now we've just gotten a big grant from DARPA to actually put together computer science and cognitive development. And it may be that those little neglected children are actually the ones who have the real key to, uh, to human intelligence. So let me end by talking about my, uh, recognizing my collaborators and support. I always think, you know, this is the slide you put up at the end, but it actually is a nice illustration of exactly the points that I'm making in the talk, because on the one hand, right, it's the children, my graduate students and postdocs, who are the ones who are actually doing all the work, right? They're the ones who have the great creative ideas about the experiments we should do. Um, on the other hand, it's the mothers like NSF and the McDonald Foundation and Bezos and DARPA. DARPA probably hasn't thought of itself as being a maternal kind of uh, um, agency, but in this context, actually, I think it is. They're the ones who give us the resources that actually allow us to go out and do the kind of 
exploration that we all do as scientists. Um, so thank you all for taking this time to explore and uh, um, be scientists and at least for a minute be in the same kind of state that children are in and to Sydney Ideas, which is helping to encourage the same thing. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.